Old Testament reading this evening, our text for the sermon is Joshua chapter 9, the whole chapter, Joshua chapter 9. This is God's word, his perfect, holy word. Let's uh, give full attention to it. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, heard about it, that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Therefore, elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now, look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new, and see, they are torn, and these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day now, their cities were Gibeon, uh, Chephirah, Berot, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them, and he spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves." woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. 
And now here we are in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Thus ends God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord, it is indeed our prayer that your spirit would bear witness by and with this word in our hearts and that you would accomplish your purpose for us uh, in it. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I remember one particularly remember, uh, memorable guest lecture at Westminster. Occasionally guest lecturers would come in and uh, fill in a, a teaching slot. One of them was the uh, Christian counselor, David Pallison, and he, he started the class by asking us to think about what we thought of the type of person who, as a 30-year-old man, would say something like this. And here's, here's what this man said. I can do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my father do. Whatever my father does, that's what I do. David Pallison asked us to think about what we thought of a 30-year-old man who would say that. And the whole class uh, seemed to be in agreement that um, if we heard someone saying that, we would think they needed, they needed some help, uh, that they were psychologically stunted. They needed some, uh, some independence from their father. They needed to learn some self-reliance. And then at that point, Dr. Pallison said, well, Christ said that. Um, those words are a very close paraphrase of John 5.19. So we all felt very, very foolish in that moment. And of course, we're, we were correct in a way. If, if a 30-year-old man came to me and said, you know, I can't do anything on my own. Uh, I only do what I see my father doing. I, I would tell him, I think, that he needed to learn some maturity and take some responsibility and learn some self-reliance. There's biblical grounds for saying that. But brothers and sisters... There's a danger for us here, thinking about self-reliance. It's such an American value, isn't it? Um, it's been gospel truth in our culture for so long that, that we are to rely on ourselves. Um, uh, Emerson, the, the great leading early intellectual in America, says, trust yourself, trust thyself. But this isn't just an American thing, this, this ideal of self-reliance, relying on ourselves. It's a universal thing. There's a danger for us as, as men and women, right? Because what, is, what does the serpent do in the Garden of Eden as he goes to Eve? Trust thyself. Don't trust the Lord. Trust yourself. And since then, we have never stopped being allured by that idea of, of trusting ourselves, relying on ourselves, finding in ourselves the resources and the know-how and the skill and the energy that we need for what we want to do. We, because if we, can, if we can do it on our own, we get the credit for it, right? If, if I rely on myself and it succeeds, then I get the credit. I get the praise for it. I get the respect for it. It's this desire that we all have to be like God, even as Eve tempt, was tempted in the garden, to rely on herself and, and try to be like God. Self-reliance. One pastor has said that the opposite of faith is self-sufficiency. 
could also say the opposite of faith is self-reliance. Self-reliance says, I don't need God for anything. Or self-reliance could also say, I only need God for some things. Faith says, I need God for everything. So brothers and sisters, as we come to this text, consider which, which is your mindset? I need God for everything. Or I need God for some things. I need God for nothing. That's what our text here in Joshua 9 is about. That's the problem in the text. That's, that's where the drama in the text is. It surrounds Israel's failure of self-reliance. And that's our first point, verses 1 through 15. So the Israelites are coming off fresh from their victory over Ai. Uh, they're once again riding high in, 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 in victory. They've been reassured of God's presence and his power and his promises. Uh, they've just renewed their covenant commitment to him, and, and, and everything's going well. And the surrounding nations are hearing about all this, and they're getting more worried. That's how the chapter starts, telling us about uh, how these, um, uh, these kings, these inhabitants of the land, are, 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 are making alliances together, uniting together against this new threat, which seems invincible. Uh, Yahweh and Yahweh's people come in and, and overthrow Jericho and overthrow Ai. The kings are terrified, so they combine forces. Everything's going well for Israel. But not all the inhabitants of the land uh, are, are, are thinking that armed resistance to Israel is the best tactic. Uh, some of them get a different idea. The Gibeonites here, they hear about Israel's victory over Jericho and Ai. They realize they don't stand a chance against Israel in armed conflict, so instead of uniting with these other tribes, they, they, they decide to try to deceive Israel, trick Israel into signing a peace treaty with them. So as we read, they send some ambassadors uh, to them, and they make it look like they've come, they're, they're coming from a really faraway country. They, they see to every detail, worn out, uh, worn, worn out sacks, worn out wineskins, worn out sandals and clothes, and, and dried out bread. And at first, as, as these ambassadors come to Israel, the men of Israel have the right instinct. They don't trust them. Uh, they question them. How can we be sure you're not lying to us? They, they know that God has told them not to make a covenant or a treaty with any of the nations in the land. They're supposed to annihilate everyone in the promised land. God has given them permission to make alliances with distant nations, but not in the promised land. Deuteronomy 7, 9, You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So the Israelites are rightly on their guard. But the Gibeonites are, are flattering and convincing. They come to the Israelites and they say, we are your servants. They repeat that several times. There's a note of irony there. Servants is exactly what they're going to be by the end of the chapter. But, but right here, they're, just, they're, they're not sincere. They're just trying to avoid being killed. So they claim to be a far country because they've, they've heard of God's power at work on behalf of the Israelites. Now, it's interesting here that they, that they uh, uh, make much of what God has done on behalf of the Israelites. It's, it, it, that's what we love to hear, right? What, what other form of flattery is, is better for a, a child of God than to hear uh, someone praising and acknowledging what God has done for us? One of the commentators points out here that we love to hear people talk about God's work among us. We take pride even in this. And, and someone from far away hearing about what God has done 
among us. Imagine someone came to our church, say from, I don't know, a state out in the Midwest, and they say, we've heard though what God has been doing at Lemington OPC. There would be some temptation there to pride. We'd like to hear that, wouldn't we? So the Gibeonites are flattering them. And they're offering, offering convincing proofs to them. But there's something, before we move to Israel's response, uh, as they are eventually convinced of, of what the Gibeonites are saying, before, before we move there, we should take notice of here something about the Gibeonites, because it's not just the Israelites who are about to fail because of their self-reliance. The Gibeonites here are failing because of self-reliance too. Uh, they've, uh, they, they, there's, a, there's an interesting parallel here between the way the Gibeonites talk about God's work and the way Rahab, back in, Jer- uh, back in Jericho in Joshua chapter 2, talked about God's work. They're very similar. Rahab sees what God did to the Egyptians and to the, uh, to the other kings, and, and, and Rahab says, in fear of the Lord, I'm going to seek the Lord's mercy. I'm going to seek his grace by joining with your cause. And so Rahab is not uh, cut off, slaughtered, devoted to destruction with the rest of Jericho. No, she's made a part of the covenant people of God. If the Gibeonites had done that, like Rahab, if they had, if they had said, we are, we, are, we are in fear of the Lord's judgment and we are seeking his mercy, relying on him instead of relying on ourselves and our cooked-up plan, no doubt they would have been brought into the covenant and saved. But they refused to humble themselves. Even as they confessed their fear of the Lord's judgment, they refused to humble themselves before God and ask for mercy. Instead of repentance and faith, what we see is flattery and deceit. They rely on themselves. That's their failure of self-reliance. We also see, though, and this is really where the focus of the text settles, uh, the Israelites' failure of self-reliance. Verse 14 tells us how the Israelites respond to the Gibeonites. It says this, Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Israel's leaders take the evidence. They look carefully at the evidence that the Gibeonites offer, but they don't seek the Lord's counsel. They're relying on themselves and, and their wisdom. They don't even seem to think here that there's a chance they might be wrong. They don't consider the huge consequences, the irreversible consequences of swearing an oath of peace with these people. They think there's no doubt. This is so clear and so straightforward and so obvious. They should have stopped. They should have said, let's, just to be sure, let's seek God's counsel here. God, God has set up for Israel a way for them to do this. When they don't know what to do, they're to go to the priest, and he will consult God, and the Lord will make clear to them what they should do. But they don't even think, it seems, to do this. And we see here, don't we, a great illustration of our hearts and our tendencies. A situation comes up, and our default is, well, let me see the evidence. Let me, let me think about this. Let me use my resources for this. But as one commentator puts it, we see here the trouble with common sense. The commentator writes this, Do we need the guidance of God only when we are in doubt? Do we not need to be careful when we begin to think, There is no need to consult the Lord on this matter. It's quite clear. Not that you have to ask the Lord whether you should get a haircut at four o'clock. The scriptures do not require wilting in the everlasting arms 
only leaning on them. But we must beware of that subtle unbelief that assumes, I have this under control. So dear ones, when do you feel like you need God's wisdom? That's a good place to be. When you feel like, I need the Lord's wisdom and counsel and guidance here. The dangerous place to be is when we don't feel like we need the Lord's wisdom, guidance, counsel. That's what we need to be on guard against. Proverbs 3.7 puts it so well. Be not wise in your own eyes. Paul agrees, he says in Romans 12.16, never be wise in your own sight. Isn't that our temptation? To be wise, to think we know what to do. To think that we can handle things by ourselves. So we should never think, I, I, I can do this on my own, or, or I did pretty well in that situation, didn't I? Or, or I know what is best right now. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be confident in the Lord and confident in the wisdom He does give us, but we should not be confident in ourselves. Self-reliance, brothers and sisters, is the height of folly. Why should I trust? Why should we trust ourselves? Our experiences, our wisdom are, 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 are so limited. Our perception is so small and so uh, 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 provincial. We cannot see beyond the horizon of what we've experienced in, our, in ourselves. I cannot rely on myself for anything. You picture, we, we picture God's providence often like a tapestry. And we say we're in the, midst, in the midst of this tapestry. Why should a thread in the tapestry depend on, that, on his own perception when it's so small? Shouldn't he depend 100% on the perception of the master weaver who can see the whole thing? There's a complete, comprehensive knowledge of absolutely everything in God. There's a greater gap, brothers and sisters, between our wisdom and God's wisdom than there is between a newborn's wisdom and his parents' wisdom. I think of a baby who knows nothing. There's a greater gap between my wisdom and God's wisdom than between that baby's wisdom and his parents' wisdom. We have no reason to rely on ourselves. We have every reason, though, to rely on God. He sees everything, knows everything. He has perfect, comprehensive wisdom of all things, we can depend on Him. And in that we can find confidence. In that we can find real confidence in His wisdom and in His guidance. So, brothers and sisters, um, here's what this means for us. We need, then, if, if these things are true, if I can't depend on myself, but I can depend entirely and wholly on the Lord, we need to keep going back to the Lord. Right? Day after day after day. Going back to His Word, welding our hearts to His Word. We need to keep coming back to God and, and, and say to Him, I have no wisdom, you have all wisdom, so teach me. Teach me what to think and teach me what to say and what to feel and how to live. We are all students in the school of Christ and we never graduate from that school. We are, we are all students under Him. So this is how we learn this is how we learn to rely on the Lord now. You know, we're not in the same situation anymore as the Israelites were, where we can go to the priest and have him consult the Lord and get a, get a specific direction. But what we have is much better. We have the Word of God and the Spirit of God bearing that Word in our hearts. So let's go to Him and train our hearts by the wisdom of God's Word. 
Now, uh, let's return to the text here. There are some significant things for us to see here also uh, that are playing out redemptive historically, things that are significant themes that we see in the text here I want to pick up on as we continue to consider the failure of self-reliance here. uh, Significant themes that we see here that that run through all of Scripture that I'd like us to notice. And, And what we see here first is we see the fault lines of self-reliance that run through Israel's spiritual foundation. We see it in the leadership here. We see, consider Joshua here. Joshua himself is one of the great leaders of the Old Testament. He's one of the, the purest, you know, one of the most competent, faithful leaders that we see in Scripture. This situation here with the Gibeonites, I think, is his, is his big failure. Maybe it's minor compared to some of the other failures we see in, in some of the other uh, leaders of the Old Testament, but it's significant. We see here that even Joshua has shortcomings as he relies on himself. And, and as he does, he exposes this attitude of self-reliance that I think uh, runs through all Israel. Because just in another generation or two, uh, these fault lines of self-reliance are going to be causing major earthquakes, right? In the book of Judges, what's the, what's the refrain? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Self-reliance. That book, Judges, is the account of the results of self-reliance, the consequences of it. And we, we see it all. It runs on through the book of Judges all the way through the whole of the Old Testament history. We see Saul, David, Solomon, all of them right, falling into this trap of relying on themselves and leading Israel into failure. And, and finally, Israel is brought into exile. Failed leadership uh, because of self-reliance and a refusal to trust the Lord. The second thing I want us to see here is what the consequences of this failure of self-reliance are for Israel. We see in verse 15 that they go on to make a covenant with the Gibeonites. And the result is that there's now a part of the promised land, right? This promised land is supposed to be the holy place where God's holy people dwell and no one else. But now this holy place has been adulterated. It's been made mixed now, impure now. And so, in a sense, the conquest can never really be complete now because the Gibeonites are here in the land and there's no getting rid of them. The warning here is this. If Israel fails to take the land completely in the first place, right at the very outset of the conquest, they're failing. How can they hope to retain this land? So there's this. We see the leadership of Israel called into question. If even Joshua fails... How will our future kings not fail? And we see the the land called into question. If at the outset, this this conquest is never going to be entirely complete, how can we hope to retain this land? But this failure of self-reliance, of course, is not how the story ends. In fact, what we see next in the chapter, as the the chapter goes on, is, is, is quite surprising. Even as Israel learns the truth of what's happened here, faces the consequences of their failure of relying on themselves, we see God's grace shining through here. We see that despite their self reliance, God, by his gracious providence, is succeeding even where they are failing. And that's our second point the success of God's providence in verses 16 through 27. In verse 16, the Israelites find out the truth. The Gibeonites have deceived them. 
They, they come to their cities and they find there they are, right smack in the middle of the promised land, these strong, uh, well-positioned cities full of Gibeonites uh, who, uh, who have lied to them. The people become angry with their leadership. They're, they're right, I think, to be frustrated and upset that their leaders have failed in this. But the, the leadership does something commendable here. I think um, they've made this vow by God's name and they're not going to break it. Psalm 15.4 tells us that one who swears to his own hurt and does not change is a righteous man. So the leadership is keeping this vow even though it's going to be costly to do so because they're concerned for God's honor. But, but even in this, even as the Israelites discover their failure, that the Gibeonites are actually living right here in the middle of the Promised Land, we see the success of God's gracious providence. We see first their... By, by signing this treaty, God has given them a large control over a large section of the land, a strategic le- uh, part of the promised land, without a fight, without a battle. Some of these cities here the Gibeonites are in are prominent, powerful cities. They're, they're like I said, kind of in the middle of the promised land. So by giving them this, this place, the Lord has split the northern and southern parts of the land so that they can't coordinate an attack together on Israel. And so that even as the conquest is in some respects compromised here, God is still advancing His purposes. He's still going to use even this failure to bring about their victory. He's even using it to their advantage in this. His providence succeeds even where His people fail. So we see this benefit here that God brings even in their failure. But Joshua is not going to let the Gibeonites go unpunished. He's not just going to say, well, go ahead and live as you were. Uh, They can't take their lives, so instead they make them their servants. In particular, uh, we're told that they're going to serve the altar of the Lord. That's the altar at the tabernacle where Israel worships the Lord. These Gibeonites are going to have to cut the wood for the sacrifices. They're going to have to bring the water for the ritual washings. They're going to have to supply the needs of God's tabernacle. And again here, as we see this, we see God's providence at work, His gracious providence at work. Right? He's providing laborers for this, this, this mundane, difficult labor. He's, he's providing for the needs of the tabernacle. He's blessing His people through that. But, but even more so, we see His blessing extending to the Gibeonites themselves. Here are these people who relied on themselves and tried to deceive His people. Yet He's being gracious to them. And, and these are not... Uh, these are not morally neutral people. These, are, these Gibeonites are just like the people of Jericho and just like the people of Ai who are, who are wicked and full of sin and who uh, were under God's wrath and curse for it, who should have been utterly destroyed and it would have been just. But rather than been destroyed, God spares them. This is all happening in His providence that they are spared, even though they should have been destroyed. And, and, and even as he places a curse on them for their deception, that curse takes them to his tabernacle. He's putting them in the path of blessing. What greater blessing could there be short of actually being made a member of the covenant than to be there serving at the altar of the Lord, providing the wood and the water that was needed? Will they not be drawn to God's mercy by his mercy? to become Israelites by faith? Will not some of them, by God's sovereign grace, see His grace to them and, and, and uh, be made Israelites by faith? 
I think we see here a hint of the fulfillment that's coming of, of, of the promise God made to Abraham to make his seed a blessing to all nations. Right, that promise that the gospel will go out to all nations. We see a foreshadowing here of, of that happening and a hint of that happening. So we see God's providence at work in this too. But even more so, most of all here, we see the success of God's providence in this. He uses here the failure of Israel's leadership and their failure to fully obtain the promised land to point to Israel's need for a greater leader to lead them into the heavenly promised land. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses promises the people that one like him will come and uh, lead the people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the next generation of Israelites expecting a Moses-like leader. And they, they, they find one in Joshua, but then there's failure there. And, and then on and on through Old Testament history, there are prophets and leaders raised up, but none reach Moses' level of importance and significance until our Lord comes, right? The Lord Jesus. In Acts 3.26, he is called the prophet like Moses. And in Hebrews 3, it is said he is greater than Moses, yet more significant than Moses. All the heroes of the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, are, are pointing us to the Lord Jesus. Yes, when they succeed and do well, they point us to Christ. Also when they fail, as Joshua fails here, because they show us our need for an infallible Savior, an infallible leader, a sinless Messiah. And I think that's what this text is doing for us most of all. So let's, let's consider our Lord Jesus. In contrast with Joshua here, we said that Joshua's key failure was self-reliance, that he thought, if only for a moment, but, but that was enough, he thought he had in himself the resources that he needed to lead God's people well. Think about Christ. Did he rely on himself? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because didn't Jesus have in him, didn't he have? all the resources in himself that he needed to lead the people? Isn't he God himself? How can he be a model of self-reliance if he is a model of relying on God if he himself is God? Isn't he the one who is authorized to be self-reliant, right? The only one? Well, yes, of course, Jesus is God. And as God, he relies on no one and nothing but himself and his perfect wisdom and uh, divine power. But at the same time, Jesus is also man, the Son of Man, as he says. And the Gospels make a point of showing us how Jesus, as man, relies on God. We saw this earlier, right? John 5.19, where Jesus says he can do nothing of himself. He's talking there about his manhood. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. We see it also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus goes, he's baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? He's totally reliant on the Spirit for his ministry. It's, it's after he's baptized with the Spirit, empowered, enabled by the Spirit, that he goes out and fulfills the ministry he's called to. Every moment, Jesus is perfectly reliant on the Holy Spirit. He's relying on God. He's never self-reliant. You see what this means? 
for you. Why it matters for us. Let me draw three implications here from this. First, it means that every time you and I fail, every time that you and I do rely on ourselves, that failure can be covered by Christ. Because our record in in God's eyes is not a record of relying on ourselves, even though that's what we've done. It's Christ's record of perfect reliance on God that's counted to us. What a wonderful thing. Even as we fall and fail and rely on ourselves, we have a perfect record of God-reliance in Christ that we can claim and cling to. Second, we see here Jesus' perfect reliance on God means that you and I have a perfect leader. Our leader, our king, has never once, in reliance on himself, misspoken, misstepped, made a poor decision, and he never will, brothers and sisters. Every decision that our Lord Jesus has made or will make is a perfectly wise, just, good one. He is a leader, then, that we can trust wholeheartedly and completely, one that we can rely on wholeheartedly. The king of the church cannot lead the church wrong. He cannot lead you and me wrong. Every other leader we're tempted to rely on can and will accept our Lord Jesus. What a comfort. Third, we see here once again the important connection between Israel's leadership and Israel's inheritance in the promised land. We see here that faithful leadership leads to full inheritance. A failure in leadership leads to a forfeiting of inheritance. We saw this in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua there in chapter 1, we're told, must be courageous, godly leader, devoted to the Lord and reliant on his word, keeping that word, if the people are going to successfully inherit the land. So we see this also, uh, this this principle here, this... this, um, Reliance on the Lord by the leader of God's people means that the people get to uh, uh, conquer and, con- and, and retain the promised land. And so we see in this uh, account here in Joshua chapter 9, as Joshua fails to rely on the Lord, the people in, a, in some small way are starting to forfeit a part of the promised land. And we see this, it comes out so much more prominently later on in the, uh, in the history of Israel. As, as the kings of Israel fail and lead the people away, they lose the land, right? This connection between obedience and blessing, it actually goes all the way back to Adam himself, right? He is in uh, uh, the, the Garden of Eden, that, 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 that promised land, right? And, and if he obeys the Lord, he keeps the land. If he disobeys the Lord, he loses it. He's exiled. And we see this... You know, he's, he's, as we know, he's, he disobeys, he's exiled. The, uh, we, we know that well. And we see that played out over and over again through Israel's history. But then, right, Christ comes as the second Adam and the true Israel and the king of Israel who cannot go wrong and will not. He perfectly obeys. And his obedience opens heaven perfectly. It cannot be lost. And so that's where this text points us, brothers and sisters. It points us to Christ, the one who has, by his obedience, opened the heavenly promised land, and it will not be taken from him or those who are in him. So in closing, let me challenge you and encourage you to great reliance on God. Not to rely on yourself, 
not to be confident in yourself, but to rely on God and draw confidence from Him. Let me encourage you to a more continual and constant reliance on the, on the Lord. If Christ needed to be reliant on the Lord for His ministry, surely we do. And Jesus says in John fifteen five, Apart from me you can do nothing. We can do nothing, brothers and sisters, in reliance on ourselves. We can only do something worth doing if we do it in reliance on the Lord. So this means constant prayer. This means, this means deep habits in God's Word, going to His Word. It means worship and the sacraments, all the means of grace, feeding on Christ by faith, abiding in Him, reliance on the Lord. That's, that's what that looks like. Let me encourage you once again to pursue those things. Uh, but don't just see an example here and don't just see a call to obedience here. See your Savior here. In contrast with Israel's failed leadership, see Christ and His perfect leadership and His perfect obedience and rely on Him. Let's pray together.